Welcome to the Caroline Gleick Show, where we talk about adventure and activism and how sports can change the world. Michaeli Oliver is a photographer, geographer, and descendant of the Nitsipapi, Blackfeet and Shawnee peoples, based out of Eastern Shoshone and Shoshone-Bannock traditional territories, which are now colonized today as Driggs, Idaho. She's a strong advocate for the land, and through her photography, she shares photographs that cultivate a mentality of inclusivity. The land and her people are what drive her forward in telling stories and uplifting indigenous voices. She works with Natives Outdoors, on the land media, and her own photography collective, Loudmouth Visuals, to elevate underrepresented BIPOC voices in the outdoor industry. I'm so stoked to talk with McKaylee today. Support for the Caroline Gleick Show and Stoke-fueled adventure seekers everywhere comes from Icon Pass. From this spring to next winter, the mountains are where the Stoke lives. These are the moments that, when we own them, we own them forever. On sale now for the 21-22 season, Own the Stoke, at IconPass.com. McKaylee, I'm so excited to chat with you. I love following your journey, your writing, your photos on social media, and it seems like you've been working on some really cool projects this winter, and so that's been really fun to see. So what is your first memory of being stoked on the mountain, and how did you get into skiing? Um, first off, thank you for having me on the show. Um, excited to be here and to chat about, yeah, my favorite thing to do. Um, when I first started skiing or my first memory, I guess was, uh, I think I was about three or four years old. I have a pretty decent memory. So it goes back pretty far. Um, and I remember my dad taking me up to the, the top of, I think at the time it was, um, Copper Mountain. And he set me on the top of a ski run and didn't really give me any ski lessons or an intro. It was just like, this is how you stop and this is how you go. <laughs> That's just the, the, the two, uh, the two lessons I got. And he, um, then like sent me down the ski hill. And I remember, um, I had these two big pink goggles. I always talk about them. They're hand-me-downs. Um, and I remember them like flopping all over my face so I could barely see, but I just remember the wind kind of rushing through my, um, through my goggles and, and through my helmet and just like feeling so free on the mountain. And, um, later in life, I realized, I actually saw a couple of really cool videos of my grandfather and my dad's side, um, actually skiing. Uh, and he was a really amazing skier too. So also just finding out that, um, skiing has been in my family for a few generations now, uh, has also been something that's like really, um, I guess elevated my stoke for, for skiing and for the mountains. And then just in general, um, some of my first memories of mountains were looking at mountains, um, you know, being from Colorado, all you have to do is look West and you see these gorgeous mountain ranges right there. And I grew up on the front range. So I was able to really be able to just every single day appreciate, um, these incredible, <laughs> these incredible ranges just outside my, my front door. So yeah, those are my, those were some of my first, I have tons. It's hard to narrow it down to 
one or two. Well, that's so cool that your story about your dad teaching you how to ski because, um, yeah, my parents taught me how to ski at a young age and they wanted me to learn because it's such a beautiful lifelong sport that you can do as a family, like throughout a lot of generations. And so I don't have children, but my, my brothers do. And like last season before COVID, we got to ski with like three generations of family at once. And that was really cool. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, it was yeah, really always- fun. I've always dreamed of uh, skiing with my grandfather and wish that that could have happened before he passed away. It would, it would be really cool. But I think that, um, if I ever have kids or my brothers, I have, I have two brothers and, um, if I ever have kids or my brothers ever have kids, um, I hope that my dad stays in good enough shape, uh, from skiing. He has some knee injuries, (laughs) but hopefully he could ski with us one day and, uh, we can have that three generations because that's a that's a special thing. It is such a special thing. Yeah, I mean, I have some knee issues as well, so I can relate to that part. Um, and my seeing my dad now, my dad's really old now. He'll be ninety in May. I have a really old dad, and so seeing like my dad now slow down, like it's a little bit. Sometimes it's so sad to see him like fall. I'm like, no, you know, it's like a really weird thing when your dad goes from being like that Superman kind of person who can like do anything to then seeing him more fragile. That's been like a tough transition for me, but I'm really happy we can still ski, even if it's at slower speeds. Um, It's cool too what you talked about with your grandfather, because I never got to meet my grandfather, but my grandmother told me that he was a champion ski jumper at our local hill where I grew up in Minnesota. So that I have like this old school photograph of him and um, it is like, yeah, it's just those memories of skiing. I feel like we never forget. The other thing I can relate to that you said is seeing the mountains and like having that backdrop be like such a big inspiration. And so what are some of your favorite places to ski and how often do you get out there? Um, Let's see. Well, when I was a little kid, we would ski every single weekend. Um, and I grew up skiing on Copper Mountain and Winter Park. Uh, we would go up every single weekend, um, every single chance my parents had off work. Winter Park or Copper were um, about an hour. Now I'm out in Driggs, Idaho, which is where I currently live. Um, but when I do get to ski at ski resorts, um, Jackson Hole here uh, on the Teton Valley is one of my favorite ski resorts. And then always going back to Winter Park and just like knowing that that ski resort, like the back of my hand is a really cool experience. And so um, this this season, um, even though I didn't have a ski ski pass, I was actually able to um, ski a bit with Connor Ryan on some of the things that he's been doing, shooting photos and um, shooting his video that just dropped. uh, And it was cool doing that. Uh, that's these, these so, things seem like these bigger things doing it on my home mountain. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so cool. I really love following that project because for those of you who don't know Connor Ryan, he's on Instagram Sacred Stoke. And like between your writing and his writing, I just really appreciate like the candid perspective that you bring about like decolonizing the snow sports industry and sort of the way we conceptualize the wilderness experience. And like I had Connor on the show uh, a couple months ago and he's just... I don't know. I just love his energy. Like he's so easy to talk to and he just brings up some really good points. And I also love that he's not afraid to sugarcoat things for like white people's comfort or for anybody's comfort. Like he says it as it is. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. We call Connor the peacekeeper. Um, he definitely knows how to, how to keep the peace and be calm. And he's just really good at that. Um, and definitely like knows how to not sugarcoat things while also, 
um, helping bring people in at the same time. And Khan and I talk a lot about building bridges and the ways in which that we can provide a, uh, a real truth and tone to some of these real conversations like decolonizing, like um, indigenous joy, like uh, indigenous oppression, all of the things in between, um, while also bringing people into the conversation and not alienating people. Uh, it's definitely something that we that we talk about a lot, and we both see ourselves as these um, these these builder these builders of bridges. I mean, we're both we're both mixed, and I think that's an interesting um, like mixed heritage. And I think that's an interesting thing that uh, mixed heritage um, BIPOC individuals have um, kind of in their in their handbook is this ability to build bridges. Yeah, no, that you described that so accurately because like he says these hard truths, but they're like in a way that you can understand them and accept them. And um, so he's Lakota and Irish and you're also Irish. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm uh, Blackfeet or Amskapi Bakani Blackfeet specifically. And then I'm absentee Shawnee. Uh, meaning my indigenous heritage comes from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and then up on the border of Canada and Montana. And then um, on my mom's side and a little bit on my dad's side, um, I am Irish and Italian. Uh, but I often tell people I'm from four directions because the way I think about it in my head is um, my mom's family is up on the Italian Alps, actually, which is, I think, kind of a little bit where I get my mountain love from. Um, so her family's up there. So I have like my mountain family and then like my Irish family is the coast. And I have like Cape Giardia, Missouri, which is like woodlands. And then I have Plains natives. So I kind of feel like I'm a person of four directions. <laughs> that is so cool. That's so powerful. And, um, yeah, it's so awesome that you're able to like honor all the sides of your heritage like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I grew up very Irish Italian, you know, like my, my parents both love Italian culture a lot. And, um, my grandparents last name on my mom's side is O'Halloran. And, you know, like today, St. Patrick's day, um, is just like a really amazing holiday. We always celebrate it. And, um, so it's been interesting for me, like identifying as an indigenous person while also like celebrating, um, these other heritages that are European. And it's definitely something that I, um, have been feeling the need to chat about a little bit more publicly is, uh, what is it like to be, yes, an indigenous person, but also kind of have some privileges of having European ancestry as well. And, um, and also too, just growing up with, with those, those heritages as well. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Connor like explored some of those things as well. And I also think like the overlay of like femininity too, and being a woman, like there's another, there's like so many layers there. And so, Absolutely. um, Yeah. That's so cool. So does your mom ski too, being from Italy um, Italian, or her family from the Italian Alps? Yeah. So, yeah. So my mom herself is not from, is not from Italy. Um, she is actually from uh, Maryland, but. Okay. Got it. But her, Maryland, yeah. Colorado, but yeah. Um, yeah, on, on her sides, uh, it's Irish and Italian on her mom's and her dad's sides. And um, no, she does not. Ski. Well, she has skied and she uh, enjoys um, hanging out in the mountains and loves being outside. Um, but we always used to laugh because my mom skis in like upward motion. So she'd actually go down the ski slope. It's hard to describe this with words. I always like show it with my hands. Um, but instead of those big S turns that kind of lead you down, she would like go uphill as she was doing the S turns. <laughs> 
because <laughs> she just did not want to go fast at all. She's just like the most conservative skier I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she, she loves it. And I think more than anything, you know, she's, she's such a caretaker and she's always just known how much we love it and how much joy it brings. Like the whole, like you said, skiing is a family sport in a lot of ways. And, um, it's always brought like my dad and my brothers and I all just so much joy to be on the ski slopes. And, um, even in times that we like couldn't afford skiing, um, she would make an effort to make sure we would go hiking or sledding or anything like that. Um, so that we would still get that, that joy. Cause both my parents recognize that, uh, we need to be outside to be happy. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like my, I can like really relate to what you said about your mom because my mom also like she was a skier when I was growing up but then she kind of like uh, with motherhood and especially now she's a grandmother it kind of like her skiing took a back seat to support the family to be able to go ski and when she does ski like one day a year maybe I'll get her to do an afternoon with me at Deer Valley and there's this one green run she likes and it's just like really wide open and really flat and she can just go as slow as she wants but it kind of makes me sad because for me, like being a skier, it's like a way where I can express like a powerful, aggressive femininity. And I feel kind of sad that like, like in snow sports, we see a huge dip of uh, participation in women as they get older. And so I'm like, ah, oh, I wish that I could support. I mean, I guess I can support my mom and getting out with me for that one day a year. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I guess uh, some of the things that I've learned, like especially from, I don't know if you know Shelma June. I've heard of, I've, I haven't met, but I've, I've heard of She's been a big, she's not a skier, More she's more of a climber than a skier. I think she does ski, but um, she just really inspired me because I was like doing some lobbying with her in Washington, D.C. with this advocacy organization. And there were like a bunch of people of color and women, but she was like, yeah, we have people of color and women, but none of them are in leadership positions. And so like something I've been focused on in some like it's just how can we get women to the top to the highest levels whether it's like with mountaineering or skiing yeah so I was curious if you had any thoughts about that yeah you know as as you were saying that I was thinking a lot about um you know celebrating our differences as as women and and how like yeah some of us um like you and myself uh find this fiery powerful femininity and like kind of the aggression of, of skiing as a way to celebrate our, our, our feminine aspects. And I definitely, um, have been there. And sometimes I, you know, I feel like such a woman when I'm like outside and like, you know, just embracing that like fiery, um, aggressive side. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, but then I think also too, like with, you know, our moms and with my mom specifically, um, to her, she kind of has embraced what it's, you know, all of these stereotypes that I just don't think are really necessarily that much of a bad thing. She's embraced the stereotypes of, of being a caretaker and being a mother. And, um, my mom, you know, when it comes to sports and, um, being outside, she enjoys the quiet moments, you know, she's never, she, she grew up ice skating actually. Um, there wasn't a ton of access to ice, ice skating is like skiing. It's really expensive. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of access to ice skating for her and her family really couldn't afford it, but, um, she kind of understands the, the need for movement and how, how it makes, how it made her feel. And, um, and yet, like, I think from her ice skating background, she is able to celebrate these quiet, beautiful aspects of being outside. And my mom will often sit outside, you know, and just kind of embrace like the wind whipping through the grass and, 
um, and appreciate like the quiet, more delicate aspects of, of, you know, the quote unquote wilderness or, or quote unquote outside. Um, and, and I think both of those, those celebrations of, of our own, of our own ways of, um, of being woman is just so important, you know? And like, I think we each have our own ideas and ideologies of what it's like to be a woman or what it's like to be feminine or femme or, or non-binary, all of these things like kind of wrapped up. We have our, our own opinions and understandings of those things. And I don't think any of it is, is wrong or right, you know? And I don't think, um, and I, and I don't think you necessarily need to be a complete, you know, double backflipping, amazing skier woman to like be a woman. Right. And I don't think you need to not be that either. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> no, that's, that's so powerful what you said, because like, I've been a sponsored skier for almost two decades and like so often sponsors or companies will come to me and they'll be like, Caroline, what do you think about these graphics for women's skis? Like, is this what women want? And I'm like, and just to like reiterate what you just said, I'm like, hey, just like you don't ask one male skier to speak for like all men and what masculine, like what men want on their ski graphics. I'm like, I can give you my perspective. Like, but I think it's really, I think that it is important to honor all the different expressions of femininity and all the different ways that we can be women. And like, I might love pink and another woman might hate pink. She might want her skis all like, black and uh matte black and 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 both are cool you know yeah absolutely and I think like something else too is that um and I've thought about this a lot because I haven't really fully wrapped my head around this idea of I've always felt myself like as a person who is balancing my more feminine and masculine sides you know um whereas like I don't want to be seen as you know just a girl you know and I'm sure you've run into this too like just a woman, like, oh, you're good for a girl. Oh, you're, you know, all these things like being kind of almost like pushed down or like put in this box as a woman. And then at the same time, like, you know, it's, it's been a struggle for me to balance when I'm outside because often I'll feel the need to like push forward my quote unquote masculine side. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either, but also like finding ways that I can celebrate my femininity in that, kind of space um mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if that makes sense no but. it it does because I think about my my career and I think about like early on I was just like I didn't want to be in like the all girls groups like I was like I want to be with the guys and there were definitely times too where I sort of adopted some of the traits of like a more toxic masculinity as a leadership role like I remember one expedition specifically I did it with my partner when we were like early on in our careers and I called him a bad name, a uh, pussy, because <laughs> he wouldn't go up this mountain with me. And I look back now, it's like, it's been six years. And I'm like, I apologize to him. I apologize because uh, like you don't, there's, I don't know. I've, I've learned to like lean in more to uh, trusting my intuition and like being that blend of like, I don't know. Yeah. Just the kind of femininity that I want to be. I remember growing up though, like I really wanted to be a boy and I still do get really jealous of boys sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, of course we do. Right. Like, uh, it's a little bit easier to be a boy, especially being a white male right now is, uh, definitely have it, have it the easiest. And I don't know, growing up, I was in the same boat. I I have brothers and, and I have a lot of male cousins. And so I was always just like trying to keep up and trying to hang out with, with the boys. And, 
Um, I'm also kind of more naturally on, on the masculine side, like bringing out my feminine attributes is always a little bit of a stretch. Um, it's always a little bit of a, of a hard thing or a more uncomfortable thing for me. Um, it's definitely something I'm really thankful for my mom for a lot is, uh, she definitely pushed me to like bring out some of my, my feminine aspects and always made our house. And my dad has done this too. Like always made our house like a safe space for emotions and all of these things that you pair with femininity. Um, and I think that's also been like pretty formative in who I am is just finding that balance and, um, and kind of like having space for emotions while also, you know, being outside skiing and, and, and embracing that more like aggressive energy, um, when you're doing those sports. Yeah. I love how you talked about that. Yeah. And cause sometimes I think like setting goals of like climbing mountains is like a more masculine thing, but like just the idea of like, like I just did this project where I tried to like climb and ski the vertical relief of Everest in a day. And I'm like, that's just like a masculine goal. Like it's totally arbitrary. Like it doesn't matter, but how can I bring my own like style and femininity and a different kind of spirit that's not about like conquering, but instead it's about like loving. It's not like, I don't want to slay the mountain, you know, like I want to make love to the mountain. (laughs) I mean, and I think that in general is like a decolonized way of viewing it too. Cause I think a lot of times like we pair masculinity with like males in general, but I actually pair masculinity or like this toxic masculinity um, with white patriarchy and how um, today in the society, like a lot of these ideals that we pair with masculinity are not actually by definition masculine. Um, you know, to be clear, like the way in which I think of masculine versus feminine is not male versus female. I don't pair the attributes. Like I know a lot of men who identify as men gender wise, um, but are extremely feminine, um, and not even girly or they just have feminine attributes. And I definitely view those things as, as quite different. Um, but I think that like, especially when it comes to mountain climbing or, um, skiing or ski mountaineering, any of these kind of like more conquer as sports, we view conquering as, um, more of like a masculine or male thing because it stems from a white patriarchal society that has this inherent desire to conquer um, land. And, and uh, I think it's so, there's no other culture to be more directly opposed to than indigenous peoples. And, um, you know, obviously every single indigenous culture is extremely different and extremely unique. And also we all have um, similar aspects. And one of them is most of our societies are actually matrilineal and their matriarchies. And so, um, knowledge is actually carried down, um, by the women and the women like, you know, call the punches and, um, are extremely respected and are the knowledge keepers of a lot of tribes. I know the, the Hopi tribe and specifically, um, you know, if the leader of a clan, um, like if there's no women or there's no female children to pass down the knowledge to, um, then the knowledge will die with the last member of that clan um, because the women are the knowledge keepers. And if there's no more women, then the knowledge doesn't get passed on, um, which I think is just like absolutely um, just in direct opposition to the way in which we view uh, Western society. Um, Like nothing could be more different than, uh, this like masculine, like white patriarchal <laughs> conquering a mountain attribute. <laughs> yeah, no, that was so beautiful what you described. And um, 
I guess one of the things that like bodies of work that was that I learned about at a panel like a few years ago is like ecofeminism. And um, I've been I, I've been really inspired by that body of work and just that respect for for Mother Nature and respect for women, girls, and mothers. And um, yeah, yeah, it's such stark opposition to the, our normal modes of like, you know, just thinking about our land management policy in the U.S. and how like our natural places were really looked at as like places to mine and log and extract from. Yeah. Money at the end of the day. Money, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you if you want to, I think something else that I've been really thinking about and learning about um, in kind of that same scientific or philosophical world is um, called uh, Kincentric. And one of my favorite authors, um, he's actually the one I learned the story of the Hopi people from. Um, his name is Enrique Salmon, and he's Murray, and um, that's an indigenous tribe in, in Mexico. And um, his body of work is just absolutely fascinating. And he talks about kin-centric and um, it centers relationships. It centers our relations with um, our more than human relatives, which are flora and fauna at the end of the day. So when we're outside, we don't view ourselves as, you know, so egocentric, so amazing to go conquer, get on top of um, any mountain we see ourselves as a part of a small part of this whole and, and, and inherently woven in to the ecosystem around us. And I think that as human beings and as outdoors people, as people who love to be outside is something like so ridiculously important for us to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, having that respect and reverence for nature and just feeling small and fragile and insignificant, I think is something I learned uh, my half brother was killed in an avalanche when I was 15 before I'd ever really stepped foot in the backcountry. And so like, I still, uh, I'm still really scared of a lot of stuff that I ski. Like I, uh, I take, I take it seriously. Like those forces, like we're never really conquering, you know, like sometimes the weather aligns and the fitness and the partners and the relationships align and you're like granted passage through a couloir. But, um, but yeah, but it's always the mountain granting you passage, right? You're never, yeah, forcing it. And if you you're do not in it, control. There's detrimental yeah. consequences when that happens. And um, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I think that it's definitely like a lot of uh, a lot of us mountain people experience um, those those horrible losses outside. And I think that's another reason that, um, you know, we need to take a step back and, and kind of view and, and really think about like our not saying this is what happened with your half brother, but um, just in general, like really think about our reasonings and our mentalities toward the mountains, because um, yeah, these 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 places deserve better than than like this mentality to conquer, to win, or to to take from in any way. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I still feel like a strong connection to him when I'm outside, and so it's like I can go to the mountains and. Uh, my best friend also I lost her in 2015 to an avalanche and so uh, just all the people I've lost I I feel their spirits like whether it's under a moon whether it's a new moon or a full moon or just like in the wind like I feel it when I'm out there and so I think like that's one of the things that I love so much about being in nature and skiing is like also I was diagnosed with ADHD in my 20s and so I find just like I, it's really hard for me just to sit still and work on my computer. Like I'm meant to be moving, you know? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, 
in my journey to kind of reconnect or reclaim my heritage and my identity as an indigenous person, I've really thought a lot about the ways in which um, being outside centers me in that. And um, I think those those friends and, and relatives of yours that have um, passed away while being, while being outside, while, while moving their bodies, um, you know, their essence is still sewn into the soil. And I think like a lot of indigenous ancestors have, have had the same types of relationships, um, and their, their bodies, like their souls are sewn into the soil in the same way. And I think this is also like a, you know, a reason why it's so important to get like BIPOC, uh, black indigenous people of color, like outside, because, um, this doesn't need to be a, you know, a separate or segregated sport, you know, like having the privilege to, um, be on the land and like, sow your essence in your body and your soul into these spaces, um, no longer needs to be a, a segregated thing. And I think the world is changing and the outdoor industry is changing and, hopefully one day like indigenous ancestors will have the privilege to be back on those lands again. And, um, and I think it'll be of the benefit to everyone involved if, uh, if, if indigenous peoples get, get back on the land and then can return that, that essence, that spirit that, that you felt with your, with your, with your brother, your half brother and your, and your good friend. Um, yeah. Well, I, that's why I'm so excited about the work that you and Connor are doing to like provide more representation for indigenous people in snow sports. And so like, what are things you're seeing that are making you like, do you think that there's a positive change happening with snow sports? Because the his like, it is, I mean, it, it breaks my heart that there's, it's predominantly like white male participation. Um, and, and that, that really needs to change. Yeah. Well, you know, I was actually having a really interesting conversation with um, Cody Townsend a couple weeks back and, um, you know, talking to a more experienced white male skier, um, you know, who's built his, his career in the in the ski industry specifically um, is always kind of interesting because their perspective is is or their platform, I guess, is a little bit more like built and valued. And, and so his perspective on it is actually that there's been these different generations of skiers and skiing. Um, you know, there's been kind of like the, the original, like, like kids who were skiing down coulars on like sticks, you know, and then there were like the change makers and the people pushing the sport. And then the last generation that we just saw were like, absolutely unreal things happened in skiing where we didn't even think it was possible to like do some of the lines that people have done. Um, and then this generation, he was saying he believes as a storytellers and that has really stuck with me. And I think that, um, that's exactly what I've been seeing is that there is no longer room for professional athletes of any sort in the outdoor industry without something to say. Um, if you don't have a story to tell or a cause to participate in, to advocate for, to work toward, um, and you're not going to use your platform for something good, then there's no longer room for you in the outdoor industry. And I think that is something that both Connor and I have talked about a lot because Connor isn't necessarily the most 
usual skier, professional skier. His professional skiing career has been built on not only just hard work and being a very, very excellent skier, but it's been mostly built on him as an athlete telling stories and having something to say and someone to fight for. And so he has his people to fight for, the Lakota people, the Humpapa Lakota. And um, I think Indigenous peoples and um, any people of community who have this importance to community. And that's something I found very similar um, with all bike pop folks in general is this desire for community. There's no individuality within BIPOC, within black and brown folks. Um, we see it as we are doing this and we are going to bring our communities along with us. There is no individual glory or hierarchy um, you know, when I get a sponsorship or when I get a, a photo opportunity, the people that I pitch are my people, are indigenous people, are indigenous skiers or climbers or whoever else. I'm bringing my people along with me. And I know Connor feels the exact same way when he approaches the outdoor industry, you know, like due to him and his work, I was able to get a photo published in Powder Magazine as a first year photographer. You know, I had just gotten my camera, like maybe maybe six months before my photo got published. And um, I definitely have a natural talent for photography. And also Connor has brought me along with him and, and he has invested in his community. And that's definitely something that I value and that I do as well when it comes to my photography. I love, like, I agree with Cody. <laughs> and uh, the way that you just described too, the way that the BIPOC community is creating this like deeper community within snow sports. That's so awesome because snow sports really needs that, you know? Like snow sports, um, it can feel so lonely and isolating sometimes. Like, especially the way it's practiced. Like where I live in Utah, people just like drive in their cars by themselves. They ride the chairlift by themselves. There's like this... You know, the Western, the way the Western society has been built is really like hyper individualized. And with that comes isolation and loneliness and all of these other things. And so community and connection can be a really powerful antidote to that. And so I'm just like super stoked about the work and your leadership in that space because it's really needed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like something I've been thinking about a lot is the way in which every single thing that we do is a reflection of of our society and is a, ref is a reflection of, um, you know, everything right down to the simple words that we use, you know? So if you think about why is the ski industry an isolated space, it's because the ski industry is centered on this idea of wilderness or wild and wild is centered on this idea as separate from humans as, as, you know, this solitude, solitude, solitary environment, um, this like alone space. And so I think that is to me, like something that, um, I think BIPOC are bringing in, but I also think it's really important that I make it clear, like decolonization and this idea of decolonization is for everyone. Um, and I think every single person, no matter what color can decolonize themselves and can get to that point. And I think that there's a lot that, um, you know, BIPOC leaders and activists are making very clear and accessible and also like this community aspect is something that we have had to do for survival. And so like, it's it, I struggle because I think like white people in a lot of ways, like need community. And that's like so important. And, um, you know, even talking to some of my friends from European descent, um, versus thinking about like my family from European descent and thinking about like 
they have clung on to community and they have like appreciated community so much. And like, they have such a different family dynamic that is so like the opposite of individuality and hierarchy. Um, and then a lot of my like white friends, European descendant friends have that individuality, like mentality mixed in. So I think it's important. And what I'm trying to get at here in a really long winded way is that um, white folks don't take this like community aspect that they're learning from um, BIPOC, but they figure out how to reclaim it and they get back to their roots and understand like the ways in which like their European and ancestry has gotten community or sat in community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think after COVID, like we really also need that so much too, to like, yeah, create that in whichever ways we can. So yeah. Yeah. And like getting back to like your personal ancestry and like learning like where you as a human being came from, um, because like, you know, we use these broad terms like white or indigenous or black or brown. Um, but at the end of the day, like we're all descended from somewhere. And for me, like learning where I came from and like who I am has been like the cornerstones of my entire life and like really what has created me uh, or like has like led me to the human being I am today. And I think everyone has the right to do that and should do that. And like, you know, every single like civilization has a community aspect and um, learning about like your own personal like versions of community, I think is so important. And like bringing that into the ski industry and the outdoor industry and like getting away from that individuality is just like so imperative. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. A brand new season unlocked the promise of adventure ahead and endless stoke on the horizon. Own it all with Icon Pass. 2122 is on sale now. Own the season. Own the stories. Own the stoke. For 2122, across more than 40 unique Icon Pass destinations, from the second you score your pass and stake your claim to the season, you've got an entire winter of sweet stuff to look forward to. Lock in the lowest prices of the year with exclusive spring savings, including renewal discounts, immediate spring access at participating destinations, and discounts on passes for kids. As with last year, every Icon Pass comes with adventure assurance, including credits in the case of COVID-19 closures and the option to defer the value of an unused pass. No questions asked. Whether you ride four days next winter or whether you carve out over 20, every moment spent in the mountains is a new opportunity for discovery and connection. Connection to the mountains, connection to each other, and a deeper connection to the stoke that lives in all of us. From three ninety nine, adult discover pass options and own the stoke at iconpass.com. I wanted to talk about your photography just to totally change the subject because yeah, no, no, no worries. Um, but like this connection, like your empathy, and I can feel that in the way that you photograph people. And so, how did you get into photography? And yeah, what does that look like for you now? Yeah. Um. My journey with photography has been kind of funny because um, when I was little, my dad gave me an old film Minolta camera. And so, you know, I kind of grew up shooting on that a little bit here and there. And my dad is obsessed with recording everything. Um, we have home movies for all of us of legitimately every single thing in my life. And my dad, it's really funny if he's feeling nostalgic, he'll actually like stay up late, like looking at old photos and videos of us as like babies. <laughs> That's so um, cute. I do the same thing, actually, <laughs> with my nieces and nephews. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. okay. I can well, totally relate to that. Strange. <laughs> not that strange. Um, but anyway, so so my dad kind of, I grew up like viewing um, my dad's version of, of storytelling, which, you know, family to him is just 
absolutely everything. And so he grew up or he raised us recording everything. And then I got this old film camera and um, took a couple of film classes. I took one really instrumental film class my junior year of high school, junior year of high school. Yeah. Where we actually um, developed our own film and I got to like learn about the dark room and like all of the like intricate processes in like how a camera is truly a light box. Um, And so I, I really created a lot of respect for cameras just as literal light boxes and just like how to me, I see them as I use this metaphor the other day, but um, I see a camera as uh, it's, like a stamp sort of. Um, and when you take a picture of the light or like when you capture a light, um, you are stamping into the stamp and then like placing, and then the picture is like the, the ink on the paper from the stamp. Um, so I guess after that, like initial fascination with cameras, I, um, kind of had had a lot of people throughout my life say, becoming a photographer is like becoming a professional football player. You know, you're never going to do it. It's not going to be possible for you. And I stepped completely away from it. I tried to brainstorm jobs that were more tangible or logical or my dad, you know, was sacrificing a lot for me to go to college. So I was, my parents were sacrificing a lot for me to go to college. And so I, um, I decided to major in something that seemed that seemed logical and seemed to get me like an assurance of a good job, a good job with quotation marks around there. Um, and so I stepped away from it for a long time and I had had a couple of people throughout my life kind of pretty consistently say, Michaela, you have a really good eye for photography. Like you should get a camera. And I just never got one because it was just so expensive and I could never justify it. And I just never thought that, it would be a part of my life. Um, and then I graduated from college and, you know, lucky me being a, you know, college student in the United States, there's this, uh, give your college graduate money, like thing that comes with graduating where they think you're going to be super poor. So my relatives all like, you know, gave me like a congratulations on graduating with like 20 bucks or something. And I have a lot of relatives. Um, and so because I have such a humongous family, I actually like earned like some money (laughs) from graduating college and, um, I put all of it into buying a camera and I had, um, a good friend of mine, Casey actually kind of convinced me. I remember the moment we were actually in Salt Lake city and, um, he was like, you know what, just buy, just, just do it. Michaela, you've been talking about it for days. Like just go to the store and buy the camera. Like I had another really good friend of mine, Ben, um, suggest which camera to get. And and I was like, okay, I know the camera I want to get and I have the money for it finally. And I'm just going to do it. I'm going to send it. So I, um, I went into actually picture line in Salt Lake city and I bought my very first camera and, you know, bought a bunch of lenses for it throughout the, the next couple of months when I could afford them. And I didn't even get a full frame camera. I got the Fujifilm TX2, which is a great starter camera, but definitely not like professional grade, photos, but I made it work. (laughs) And, um, I actually finally just got like my first like fancy full frame camera. Um, and I've been shooting on photos on it the last couple of months and I'm like, Whoa, this is what full frame is like. (laughs) This is exciting. Um, and yeah, just kind of kept shooting the photos that mattered and that I cared about and the stories that I thought were worth telling and got to the place I'm at now. Congrats. That is so awesome. So do you shoot video too? 
Were you shooting video for the Connor pro the Sacred Stoke project? Yeah. So I haven't shot any, I've been most, I've been only doing stills for now. The camera I just got though has opened up some doors and I'll be able to actually shoot some video with it. And I like to practice. Um, my mom said to the family, my mom taught um, videography and my grandma is actually a line producer. So my mom's side of the family is very, um, most of the, it's mostly kind of reality TV. My grandma actually was the line producer for Unwrapped, which if you haven't seen it, it's like a pretty awesome food network show where they like go in the background and kind of show you along the lines of, of food and like different food companies and stuff. And it's like a really cool, like background into. Oh, I've seen that show. I've seen, I love that show. Yeah. yeah. It's super so my grandma, cool. My grandma was the line producer for that. And then my mom, my mom's just like a multi talented artist of all trades. And, uh, she has always been a teacher. And so she's taught lots of different classes, mostly journalism, but then, um, at the art Institute in Denver, she actually taught some, um, cinematography classes that, you know, just made her just love film. And she just analyzes film from this very artistic standpoint. So I think eventually I'd really like to get into cinematography. Uh, I don't know directly what role I would hold if I would be the, the DP or, or what, but for now, just like being a part of a film crew as the the photographer within the film crew has been um, the perfect fit for me. And that's where I've been, um, where I've been working with, with Connor on his films. Cool. Yeah. And I didn't mean to come that, like, I think that the value of photography in and of itself, it's like such a beautiful art form. And I get annoyed a little bit sometimes how everything is like, oh, you have to have video too, because video is like a totally, to me, like creating video is like, can be kind of a headache. Like it's a lot of extra work oh, and yeah. the editing and like the post-production and all this story. I don't know. Like I, I think that, um, that there's a huge need for more women snow sports photographers. And as a woman of color, like I'm so stoked because like I've always, like when I started my ski career, like 2004, 2003, we were shooting with photographers on film and like you had to wait for that film to get developed and submit it to the magazines and like hope that maybe yeah. one of those editors like <laughs> thought your photo was good enough to publish and like yeah. social media and stuff. I know it's a double-edged sword, but for me, it's actually given me a lot of power back because like I've been able to, to like curate my image and my story and not have to wait through it for it to be told through a male, through the male gaze, like through males. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and that's also something just for like, uh, not only just like women, but also just all BIPOC in general. It's, I always joke that social media is the tool the colonizers never thought that we would get because, um, you know, the other day, um, this is all COVID safe. Like we have vaccines and COVID tests, but we had um, a Yakima person, a Lakota person, a Clinket person, and a uh, Supiak and um, Degaton person all in one house and a Blackfeet Shawnee person all in one household. Um, all of us from different indigenous cultures, but all of us just excited to ski. And it was like a really powerful, fantastic energy because that is not what the colonizers have ever expected from us. And I think something that like is, you know, our, again, like, yeah, double-edged sword, but um, definitely has sharpened our sword in a lot of ways when we're fighting for indigenous uh, sovereignty and self-determination. Absolutely. And, um, you know, being a photographer yourself, you have a lot of power when you pick up the camera, you know, to tell different stories. And so I'm super excited to keep following your 
photography and your career and your storytelling because your captions like I loved what you wrote about Edward Abbey so if you don't follow mixties right yeah. that's your Instagram handle <laughs> there's a story to that I, it's really funny I, I can't change it now because it's just become my name but um I used to be like kind of a park skier and would always like total code switch you know never talk about being native like never talk about my background or anything that was one of those times where you like tie your hair back and pretend to be one of the boys and all of the boys started calling me at at the the ski resort that I was at doing park they started calling me mixties and it just kind of stuck with me <laughs> and I look back on it now and I'm like mm, maybe it's kind of the, a weird name but uh I love it. I think it's awesome. It's so funny because it's like that's how I like remember people is by their. I mean, especially if I don't like get that many opportunities to hang out with them in real life. But I do feel like Instagram can really bring people together in a positive way. And um, you know, for me, like it's yeah, it's been a fun way to connect with a lot of different people and and to really curate like my experience. You know, I can be really picky. Like I feel like I've. I can choose. I have more choice of who I can interact yeah, with. Again, in a double-edged and, sword, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. want to yeah, our absolutely. realities, and at the same time, we do need it all. But uh, I suppose we can listen to obs- obsessively listen to a news podcast for that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is like the harassment and like the criminal kind of behavior on Instagram. Like, they really need to come up with some better tools for dealing with that because yeah. that's. Yeah, I I only have like 4,000 followers right now. So I'm feeling pretty happy. I get mostly love, which is just really great. And I think like 4,000 is like that sweet spot of like, okay, you get a lot of love because you like have a decent amount of followers, but you don't get all the like trolls and hatred really spewing at you yet. I have had like a couple people. Um, you always know it's going to be a bad thing when someone starts the message off as I'm not trying to be a troll, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you ever start a comment with that like that's a good time to maybe not post that comment or like say it to the mirror think about it for 24 hours <laughs> like sit on yeah, that if for i ever get any of that i uh because i have my instagram like to the point where um if you don't follow me you can't really message me it goes in like my requests or whatever nice yeah and so if it's any of the requests usually if i see that it'll only show me like a tiny bit of the or if I don't follow them, then it goes in my request. That's what it is. Um, but it'll show only a tiny bit of the sentence. And if I ever see, I'm not trying to be a troll, I just delete immediately. I like, I don't need that. I don't yeah. need that like in my life. Um, <laughs> as my elders would say, that's bad medicine. And I don't need that bad medicine in my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what advice do you have for people trying to get good photos while they're on the slopes? Ooh, um, let's see. Well, so, you know, as a, as a female photographer, um, you know, as a person who's not my, my, my tagline or my, like, it's not officially my company name. Um, but my, like my email and my website name is loudmouth visuals. And, um, my biggest advice always to someone is don't be afraid to be loud. If you want a shot or you want it in a specific way, uh, take control of the slope. Um, this is something, a reason why I love shooting with Connor so much is actually him and I are just so comfortable with each other. He knows I'm just going to like tell him exactly what I want him to do. <laughs> and I'll just yell at him. And it's really funny too, like shooting with Cody Townsend. I did the same thing and I didn't really think about it. And Cody was like, you're, you're like pretty loud. Like, <laughs> 
I was like, oh yeah, that's my thing. Like loud mouth visuals. Um, so my biggest piece of advice is uh, if you want something or you have an idea or an image of something, speak up, you know, more than likely uh, you're right. And your image or your idea is going to be beautiful and you deserve to get that because you're an artist. Um, be loud yes. and find a good pair of thin gloves. <laughs> yeah, no, that's such good advice because I feel like even when I just go skiing with my family for the day, I'm like always trying to take better photos on the fly, but I have to be really bossy. Like, okay, not bossy, but I have to direct, you know, like I have a vision. I'm like, everyone goggles up, like no sunglasses. You know, if I want portraits, uh, it's nice to see the eyes for a change. And, you know, with ski action, you, you do really need to direct to get the photos in focus because it's like a tough environment to get a shot in Absolutely. focus. And, and also so. you as a photographer are teaching the skier, um, you know, again, like rounding back to shooting with, uh, you know, shooting with veteran professional athletes, like professional athletes who've been shooting, have been shooting photos for a long time or shooting video for a long time. Uh, they kind of know what to do in front of the camera. They kind of understand like, okay, this is going to look good. Like this is how you pose kind of, kind of thing. Um, but when it's newer professional skiers or newer, just, you know, skiers of any sort, oftentimes they're not necessarily going to know exactly what to do in front of the photo. And so you as a photographer are also teaching them to be um, a better on-camera skier, which will help them in their career as well, which I think is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I learned so much from like Lee Cohen, who's like the classic Elta photographer who shoots like the tight powder shots and like seeing the frame by frame of my skiing was like, instead of me having a ski coach or like growing up ski racing, that was like how I learned how to ski. And it was super helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny. I've gotten really good at calling, um, like Connor will go off a jump or something. And I know from the moment that he, even probably before, like a frame before he takes off, I know if he's going to land it or not because of his body positioning. Um, and it's really funny too. Cause like, I'll be taking the photos and I'm like through my, through my screen, I'm like, Oh man, he's going to crash. And I get all the photos of him crashing too. And, um, I always tell him, I'm like, it's not, it's a little heartbreaking when I know you're not going to land it and I can't say anything. I just like keep taking the photos. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, I think it's also nice to keep shooting when people crash because sometimes you get some really funny reels. Oh, yeah. I got the most hilarious photos of my friend Ellen Bradley. Um, she was skiing down. It's like one of her first times taking some ski ski photos. And uh, I think she was just like stoked. She's an amazing skier. She's just like stoked to go for it, you know. And um, her ski tip, like we were skiing on corn and her ski tip plunged down. And you just see every single frame of her face diving, doing a full somersault and then ending up like perfectly sitting down. Um, and yeah, my friends and I all just laughed about those for, for a good long time, especially all of us knowing how much of an amazing skier Ellen is and how that's like, <laughs> it's just so perfect. Cause then all the next ski shots for the day were just her being a complete and like awesome, awesome skier and just like total badass. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I tore my ACL two years ago and it was like all on video oh, no. and at first I was like, I'm super bummed. But then I was like, no, I have this and like I can own it and use it as part of my story. And so like when someone's about like for me, I'm very empathetic. Like it can be hard for me to want to shoot people's crashes because I'm like, oh, no, the person like I hope they're OK. Um, but I think that it is a way to like reclaim that injury and like own it and, you know, to be able to 
use it now. I use it in like a lot of my keynote presentations to talk about that moment. Well, so I mean, I guess that's a that's a good thing and a bad thing. I I, I laugh there. Yeah, because, it happens. Um, you know, for me, I, I kind of question I always shoot the crashes and I don't even like think about it. Like, I just am like, yeah, I'm recording this. Like, that makes totally. Me <laughs> No, no, it does. I like I was on a, a sh- I would climbed this 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 Pico de Orizaba uh, with a with a photographer and filmmaker, this guy Grayson Schaefer one time. And he got really sick with altitude sickness on the top and he was like puking. And I was super concerned about him. And I was like, what do I need to do to like provide care and like get him down? And he was like, I can't believe you guys didn't video me throwing up. <laughs> and that was a really good learning lesson for me because I was like, oh, yeah, I should have like had the camera. in All his photographers face, but- are a little bit naturally journalists as well. You know, that need to like record things and, and make art from it is quite uh, <laughs> it's quite at the forefront of our minds, I think. For me, sometimes I'll purposely leave behind my my camera or or just completely shut off my phone because uh, I'm every single thing I'm like, oh, let's record this, like let's do this, like you know, I, I want to make sure I get this on on camera, and then um, later I'm like, man, I don't have anything that's my own. <laughs> I need, I need that's why I like, like in my heart that's not like on Instagram. <laughs> I like my training days for that reason is it's like it gives me some space where I'm not like trying to work and create and I'm not just like trying to feed the content machine, you know, because there's part of it that's like art and then there's part of it that's like gross capitalism, you know, so it's important for me to have those places where I can just like exist. And so that's why I like just having some days that are about training and trying to go faster or just like, yeah, having a different. Well, it's important, like you kind of said it there a little bit, it's important to, uh, differentiate between content and art. Um, you know, as a photographer, like, uh, if anyone calls my photos content, like breaks my heart. I saw this quote on Instagram the other day, actually, um, about like the shame of, of this beautiful art being called content. And I think that's just like such a good point because, um, you know, these beautiful works of art on, on Instagram are not content. Like they are freaking art, you know? And, I think with photos, that's definitely something people forget a lot of times is like, you know, I, I go on, you know, I, from the photo, from taking the photo to like my, my all my settings, like I, I'm always manually exposed, you know, I'm like, um, you know, from aperture to ISO, that kind of stuff. And then I go on my um, Lightroom and I edit the photos. And for me, that's like my favorite part is the, the art of it. Um, and I feel like I'm painting, you know, and um, sometimes I'll edit too much and I look at it and I'm like, okay, I got a little carried away. Like, <laughs> I gotta redo that. But uh just that like kind of whole like process of of quote unquote arting um is is really important. And and yeah, I I don't do the content or I try not to do the contents. I think I did my first like it was like a content boomerang of me like juggling some Patagonia provisions. And I was like, this is as far this is my boundary. This is as far as I'm gonna go. Like I I don't do the content stuff. <laughs> I know it's uh it's really hard because like sometimes those shots that you really love that are like the most beautiful images they like don't perform well on the Instagram algorithm and then like the stupidest little outtake like goes viral and you're just like I've lost all faith in humanity. Yeah. Well, I've actually like gotten a little bit reinvigorated. The posts that I really take time to put in good captions have gotten like a little bit more likes than normal um as of late, which I think is super cool because it means people are actually reading my words, which like you know, good for you guys. Like <laughs> your writing is so good. It's so good. I love it. Like, <laughs> I think you're like in your early twenties, yeah, right? I, I just turned 24 on March 2nd. <laughs> 
well, happy birthday. And I feel like you're right. Like you have a really like old soul in the best uh, way. Like, I don't mean that, that in that a bad means, way. That like, means in a lot. The- I, my mom always talks about old souls. So I, I really appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, I owe it all to my mom. My mom's like the writer, the journalist, but my mom is like an unreal poet. She has like some of the most intense, beautiful poems I've ever read in my life. So definitely if I have any writing talent, it's a hundred percent from her. I can't take any credit. <laughs> Your writing is so good. Okay, so how can we support your work and your leadership in this space? Ooh, um, in all spaces. We as as what? <laughs> Listeners of the podcast. And yeah, just and also white people. Like how can white people be better allies and supporters, but then specifically like around you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. So, so kind yeah, of Yeah, something we haven't chatted about yet is I'm actually the research director of Native Land Digital. Um, it's native-land.ca. And it is the um, website that actually a lot of people have been using for um, land acknowledgments. And I, and I do think, you know, as indigenous peoples, we're our first kind of, you know, I hate using the word battle, but for lack there of a better word to use, our first battle is actually just like helping people to realize that we are still here. Um, and so I do think land acknowledgments serve that purpose. And I think it's really important. But I think like, as you know, listeners of this podcast, and as um, people of the outdoor industry, if you're using native land digital and you're and you're doing land acknowledgements, I really I'd urge you to not stop there. You know, we have links and resources and, um, you know, I spend most of my job doing research and talking to native people from all over about, you know, what land means to them, like where these map shapes come from, you know, some of them's oral history, some of them these really cool old maps. Um, so I'd urge folks to not stop at land acknowledgements and not make that like the only um, thing that you are doing, you know, kind of click on the links on native land and, and, and educate yourself a little bit more. Um, and then as far as like supporting me goes in my work, um, you know, I think right now, one of the biggest things is Denali Hodgden and I are currently starting up a specific branch of their Denali's um, at Go Barefoot on Instagram and um, on the land. I think it's on the on dash. I'll I'll give it to you so you can put it in the comments. <laughs> but anyway, on the land on Instagram, and um, we are starting. Denali has a lot of other stuff going on with on the land, but we are actually starting a um, kind of like film production aspect of it. And so, uh, if you guys would follow that Instagram, I'm gonna be throwing up a Patreon. Um, this is gonna be. Um, a Patreon that we are going to allocate towards specifically getting another lens for the camera that we've bought so that we can start shooting film. And then um, spoiler alert, we're coming out with a zine with On the Land and I'm shooting a ton of uh, cool photos for that. So it also support um, more storytelling and more photos of indigenous peoples from all over Turtle Island, also known as North America. Yeah. So those are kind of the things I think of right now. Awesome. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, I will put those links in the show notes. Um, yeah, and your Instagram is Mick, M-I-C-S-T-E-E-Z-E, and then Go Barefoot. And um, yeah, I'll link to all cool. that yeah, stuff. And hey, if we ever have a chance to work together, I would be so honored to shoot with you and get out in the Yeah, mountains. absolutely. I'd, I'd love to take photos. You know, I, um, I haven't taken a lot of photos of women, and I'm ashamed to say that. So let's let's get out. <laughs> Let's get out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so rad to connect and hear all your wonderful yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, cool. Have a good rest of your day. You as well. I 
Special thanks to Avery Sandak for his help with the audio on today's episode. To my partner, Rob Lee, for being extra quiet while I'm recording in the house today. And to Rising Appalachia for graciously providing the music for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate and review it so other people can find it. Until next time.